I'm excited about uh, I'm excited about today. That's part of it, right? Today is just a day full of full of celebration and full of excitement. Um, it's always kind of cool when we get to start something new. Um, Lent is a time of of reflection. It's a story that draws us in. It asks us to experience things. Um, Lent is we kicked it off with Ash Wednesday, and it's the 40 days that takes us all the way uh, to Easter, and we just get to think and we get to dwell and we get to be a part of the story. And we're going to be in the book of John for the next um, several weeks leading up to Easter. And I'm excited for us to, to lay some of the groundwork today. Um, we are going to be in John chapter 11, and we're taking the whole thing today. And I normally don't do that, but I believe in us and that we can do it because it's so, so good. Um, and we're going we're gonna to kind of start this morning just by reading the thing in its entirety, uh, just so that we can hear the whole story first. And then we'll start to break it down together. So if you have Bibles, it's John 11. It will be on the screen. But this is kind of one of those things where it's, we're going to be in it all over the place. So I highly recommend pull up a device if you have one. We are pro-device here, obviously. I always pray this thing never dies. Can you just imagine? I don't print anything out ahead of time. I should probably rethink that. All of a sudden, I'm thinking I need to rethink my reliance on technology. Um, So let's hear the story without interruption, but first let's just ask God to be present among us. Uh, Father God, we are here uh, excited to open up your word. Uh, You speak to us in multiple different kinds of ways, and one of the ways in which you can speak to us is scripture. Uh, And it's amazing to be able to have this vantage point where we can see your story unfold, that we get to have this understanding of how um, the upper story of of you, God, was working into the lives of the lower story uh, in the people... um, that you, that you loved. And so I just pray that that perspective will come alive to us today in new ways and that your presence will be here, that your spirit will be the translator of the words and anything that I say that's not from you will be forgotten. And the truth, Lord, will be the thing that stays with us and in our hearts that we can put into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so John chapter 11. Let's read. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When they heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees with the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles. For he has no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. 
On this arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them could not be, but some of them said, could not he be open the eyes of the blind? He could keep this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed that you, that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloths around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We're going to stop there. We're going to take that, that first chunk. This is just one part of the story. And we get to read the larger story in bits of peace. This is a story of Jesus' life. And so just like any story, I go back to sort of my English roots. I was an English teacher for like a hot minute. My classroom management was awful, you can imagine. But each story always has the same sort of credentials, right? It has a set of characters, a setting, uh, lets us know like where they are, what they're about, and then there's some sort of conflict or problem that needs to, to get solved. So Lazarus um, is one of our first characters, and we meet all of them right away. And this is the first time that we hear about Lazarus in any of the Gospels, right? Uh, his, his Hebrew name means 
whom God helps. And in first century, people that were maybe hearing this story, names matter. And so they're sort of like waiting. If they're reading this later, they're waiting. Okay, uh, if his name means God helps, how's God going to help him in this story? Mary and Martha are uh, sisters and also Lazarus' sisters. And we know, uh, you may have heard of them uh, from Luke 10. You can check out Luke 10 on your own if you want to read more about uh, how, when Jesus meets them for the first time. And we know that Martha is the same woman that poured the perfume and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And now they live in a city. The setting is Bethany. Uh, you can put that slide up of the map there, Brian. Uh, they are in Bethany, uh, the one that's right near Jerusalem, and that is about um, a mile and a half or so southeast of Jerusalem, right? It's a small village, and that's where they live. And Jesus spent a lot of time in that area when he was around Judea, which was sort of south-central uh, um, Israel of the day. And so he would spend time there, and they opened up their home to him. Right? So it's kind of like you have people in your life that are like second family that you can kind of come and go and you're, you feed their kids and it's fine and you send them home or you can show up. That's what Jesus was like for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, he was sort of welcome anytime and he often stayed there. He, they were three of Jesus' closest friends aside from the 12 disciples. He spent time with them. He loved them. They, I would imagine they knew things about him. At the end of a, a, maybe a journey where he was tired, both physically and emotionally, that was a safe haven. Their house was a place of rest for him. Um, imagine that kind, of, that kind of friendship. When you have that in your own life, it's easy to go, yes, I have friends like that. That's sort of what it was like. The problem, the issue that they're having is that Lazarus is sick. And so that's sort of the, the setup of the story. And so if we recap it, we know that um, Mary and Martha are sending word to Jesus uh, about Lazarus saying, okay, he's sick. Jesus is kind of all cryptic, right? And it's like, when we read it the first time, we're sort of like, okay, he's, this isn't going to end in death. Don't worry, but it's going to be for God's glory and that the son might be glorified. Okay. And they keep sort of keep going. And then we're told again for a second time that Jesus loved them said, remember the first time he said, the one you love is sick. And then the second time they talk about the fact that um, he also loved Mary and Martha. So we know in scripture, when things keep popping up, it means like, take a look. This is important. I'm trying to tell you something more. Um, that repetition just keeps reminding us there's more to say, right? But then after finding this out of the people that he loved is sick, he stays where he is for two more days. That's the first thing in the story that strikes you is like, why is he doing that? That's not what I would do. My personality already is very much like, let's go. Like pack it in, get the stuff in the car. We've got to go. We've got to rush to where the problem is. If this is my friend, someone who I love, someone that is in desperate need, I'm going to go to them. Maybe you're, you're like that too, right? Like I'm, I don't know why Jesus pauses and stops. I want to get my stuff together. I'm going to go. And he stays for two more days. Do you feel that tension when you read that part of the story? One of his best friends needs help. And he's the son of God, but he stays. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go just yet. So after two days, then he says, okay, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples are referencing an earlier story where they had had a dicey encounter while they were in Judea. And there's like, Lord, I don't know if you remember this, but the last time we were in Judea, people tried to stone you. 
So are you sure you want to go back? He's having, they're having that sort of conversation with him. And he, he says, it's, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. We're just going to keep, we're just going to keep going, keep on our way. And then Jesus mentions how Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, this idea of falling asleep is a first century euphemism for when someone has passed away. It's like a nice way of saying dead. They're dead. Uh, maybe it's maybe still a little bit around today, not as much. But the disciples are a little bit confused by that because they're sort of thinking, oh no, you, you mean he's really sleeping so he has the opportunity to get better? But then Jesus sort of clears that up and recognizes they might run into trouble, but it's going to be okay. Um, and then he says something about light and traveling by light, and, and we're like, okay, and so they keep going. All right, it starts to get a little murky and a little confusing, but you just keep reading, and it, the story unfolds. So then the next question I have to ask is, where has Jesus been? And so where was he when he found out that Lazarus was sick? So if you look at that same map, interestingly enough, he was actually in the other Bethany on the other side of Jordan. And the actual proper name for that is Bethany on the other side of Jordan. <laughs> so that's just what it's called. There is two Bethanies. I don't know how the planning uh, went in that. Um, but that's roughly 25 miles away from Bethany, the other one where Lazarus is. So in first world terms, 25 miles, considering they walk everywhere, is a decent way to go. It's probably a day, day and a half travel, depending on the time of year, the weather, how hot it is, um, how fast they're moving. So you could get there. So in one sense, he's far. He's not just going to be there right away. But on the other hand, it's not like he's two weeks away. It's not like he's forever away. So it's this sort of why didn't he just pack up and go? He's not that far away. So Jesus decides to start heading back. And, and Martha, when she hears that he's coming, she runs out to him. So I don't know how far she goes, but she leaves the place where they are and she goes to run out to meet him. And notice Martha's first words to him in verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that, already that faith is there, right? This, this sort of un, like, where does that come from? Of this following Jesus, of, of knowing who he was, spending time with him, hearing the stories, having him come and sit, and I'm sure share the things that have been going on this journey. So there's still that hope in her voice, and I love. And, and listen to the next exchange in verse 23. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And so I, then I'm like, okay, did, was that a thing? Did people know, was the resurrection a thing? And so it was. In first world century, in the first century, um, resurrection was a fundamental uh, belief that resurrection of your body would happen in the end times. Uh, it comes out of Daniel 12 verse 2 when it says, you will rise for either eternal glory or eternal punishment. And so this was sort of a widely held uh, belief that, and that's what Martha's referring to. So Martha says, yes, I know. I know eventually he's going to rise again. It's kind of like when, you, when someone passes away and the thing that we want to give hope and offer to them at that time is like, but they're in heaven and isn't that, isn't that good? And it is and it's true. But in that moment, it's not helpful. You want it to be because you mean it with all your heart that it is helpful. But in, in that grief-stricken moment where there's pain, it doesn't always give the greatest comfort. But then Jesus says some big words. 
He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Resurrection at that point in time was doctrine and it was a future reality. It was something that could be, was going to be. But the interesting spin that Jesus now puts on it in this moment is it's not only a doctrine, it's not only a future, but it's a person. And the person is me. The person is Jesus. So Jesus is telling Martha this, this doctrine, this reality, it's going to be centered around me and what I am going to do, what I am about to do. And then he explains it more. And it says, if you believe in me as the resurrection life, you will never die. And then he asks this simple but difficult question. Do you believe this? And I wonder if there was a pause. I read it like there isn't because Martha is bold. Martha is this, I mean, she spent time with Jesus. She knows Jesus. And she just says, yes. I believe you are the son of God. And I'm not sure in that moment that Martha knew all the implications of what that meant or what that could mean or what it will mean. But it's such an amazing statement because it was saying, you have my allegiance. I'm in. What you say, I believe in you. I believe that you're the son of God, that you are the Messiah. And I'm, I, will, I will follow you anywhere. I am in. Where you go, I will go. Uh, I'm hook, line, and sinker, sign, seal, delivered. I am one of yours. I will follow you. So she races back to tell her sister. And then Mary comes out and meets Jesus and has the exact same words that Martha's already said in verse 32. When Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Then sort of the interesting thing happens here in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Okay, so that's when I had to do some digging because I've confessed to you, my Greek and Hebrew, sketchy to say the least. Um, so I rely on other people's teachings and um, these wonderful computer things that I have that I get to click on things and say, oh, that's the translation. That's so helpful. Um, and so Brad Gray taught me this. He's a pastor and, and I listened to him and he said this, that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. So spirit in that word is also Greek for pneuma and it can be translated um, as wind or breath as well. And I think we're going to find that, that the breath translation is probably more helpful. And so the cool thing that I learned is that this deeply moved translates into one Greek word. Embrimaomai. Embrimaomai. You guys say it. Embrimaomai. See, pretty good. It sounds weird, but it's right. I listen to it a thousand times. Sometimes I confess I don't say the Greek words because I never say them right. But you guys can see them on the screen and I forgot to make a screen or did I forget to make a screen? I don't know. I feel like maybe subconsciously I didn't because I always say it wrong. But this, this embromaomai translates into venting of fierce anger, right? So, and it's often spoken in reference to animals when they're angry or snorting. So that's why breath might be uh, the better kind of word here because it's that seething kind of anger, right? So when, when Jesus comes to the scene to see Mary crying and she's in this pain and grief, in that same moment, Jesus sees the brokenness in the world, the death in the world, the death of his friend. And because of, of the brokenness that came in in the very beginning in the garden with sin, and Jesus' response is not, I'm a little troubled in my heart. 
It's clenched, clenched fist and it's seething. It's like, <sighs> it's that kind of anger. I'm upset. I'm fiercely angry about this injustice, this thing that seems so wrong. Lazarus was my friend too. <sighs> He's troubled. And the troubled Greek translates into Tarasso, I'm not going to make you say it because I'm not 100% sure that's how you say it, uh, but it's, it means, it's translated to agitated and stir up, stirred up in great distress. So right, that's Jesus' response when he's face to face with the pain and the brokenness of the world, are those two things. And I think if we have to synthesize those two things and put maybe an emotion word behind these things is Jesus is outraged. Right? So from the position of outraged, he says, where have you laid him? They say, come and see. And then two simple, powerful, and infamous words come next. Jesus wept. Maybe you remember, it's the, the, one ver- the very first verse you ever memorized in the Bible, because it's the shortest one. Jesus, Jesus wept. And he did. And in, in the Greek, Translation for that, that word wept, is that he burst into tears. He goes from this snorting like a bull, angry, to this bursting into tears. I always read this differently. I always maybe read it like he sort of knew it was going to happen, and so these like quiet streams of tears maybe. But I think it was much more dramatic than that. He burst into tears. So he goes from one extreme to the other. And then you, I think you have to ask the question, at least I do, the best thing I ever learned from seminary is when reading scripture to, they call it interrogating the text. Ask all the questions in the world because it stands up to it. You can't ask a question and worry about if, if ever, it's a house of cards and it's going to fall apart. And so you ask the question, if Jesus already knows what he's going to do because he's Jesus, why does he get outraged and cry? Why would he put himself through all the emotional agony. I think it's, it's because Jesus is divine, but he's also human. And in this moment, the divinity of Christ and knowing what he can do, the power of God that lives within him, can't be taken away from the emotion that he feels because he was also fully human. And we have human, we have emotions. That's why it was so important that God come and to know how it is that we felt and to feel outraged and to cry and to be hurt and, and to understand what it means and not, and not be immune to grief and pain. We can't hold up his divinity and not hold up his humanity. Sometimes we, we can have an issue with that struggle. We put more emphasis on one and they have to sort of be held in balance together. Um, N.T. Wright says this. Will you put that on the, on the screen? I'm going to go like this. Uh, the word Jesus, though whom the worlds were made, weep like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of John's gospel. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures in which the word who is God can cry with the world's crying will we discover what the word God really means. 
There are things that happen in our world that make God weep. And sometimes we like to oversimplify it. But Jesus is a full reflection of God. So even in outrage and in, in, cry, and, and, and in his crying, that moment, those emotions resemble the heart of God. Right? We feel it every time we go to a funeral. We feel that same sort of tension. And it might, it, sometimes it eases the pain when it's somebody who's older, but not really. There's still that part of us. But we, get, we feel it even more intensely when people are young or in the prime of their life. They have kids at home, those kinds of things. I remember um, my friends, the Veldinks, um, they have two daughters that have AT, which is a disease that uh, attacks the nervous system. And uh, Liv ended up passing away from sepsis at 13. That was the worst. It was just, it kind of rips your heart out and you're there and there are people celebrating and in one sense, we're celebrating that she is in heaven and she's out of her wheelchair and she can walk and be free. But it's also unfair and, and, and hard and gut-wrenching that she's 13 and her life is cut so short. And her other sister, who also has this, is, think, is I remember her saying in, in the hospital room, I'm supposed to go before you. And that's hard. And you feel that, that tension, that, that struggle, that grief and that pain that's in the world. And we can't help think there's something wrong with this picture. It's not supposed to be this way. We shouldn't have to be doing this. We shouldn't have to be here in this moment. It wasn't part of the original plan. And that's exactly, and Jesus says, yes, you're right. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. Sin and death and brokenness are part of our world. And Jesus' response to it is outrage and tears. Both. And Jesus is reflecting the heart of God. God's, God cries with us. God is outraged at the same sort of things that we are. But the story's not over. There is a stone across the tomb. So when you show me the slide of the, this is what it kind of looks like. This is what Jesus' tomb would have looked like, first century. It's uh, basically a cave uh, and then a, uh, a stone that gets rolled in front. Sometimes we have pictures that looks like this boulder that can't be moved. Think about it. They got to get the stone there. They don't have trucks. There's no cranes happening. So they make these stones so that they're rollable. It's heavy still, but then they roll them and move them. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. But he's been there for four days now. It's going to smell. He is decaying now. For this four days, we keep hearing it over and over again, and it's another thing. Four days. What is, what is, trying to, what is Scripture trying to tell us to and point to? And here's, here's what I discovered. Four days... Because people would get buried alive. They didn't have modern medicine the way that we do. And so if you have this situation where somebody's sick and maybe they go comatose and their pulse is almost undetectable, they're dead and so they go and they, they sort of bury them. And then for three days, they go out and they check because they realize that they've made some mistakes before. I'm not kidding. So they go and they check, and they go to the grave area, and they call out their names, just to make sure, like, you still, you still dead? It's kind of like that. I'm sure it's far more, you know, 
less funny than the way I just made it sound, but they really do. So on the fourth day, when, when nothing happens and they're dead, dead, then they actually get pronounced dead. So because they know that the same thing that we know now, a body cannot go three days without water, right? Especially in a dry climate like that. So after three days, if they weren't dead, they're dead now. So then they're pronounced dead. So after four days, Lazarus is irrefutably dead. And he yells, come out. And he does. All sort of wrapped up like a mummy, prepared. And this isn't, the interesting thing about this, it's not the first time people have been raised from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha did. Jesus has already raised two people. But this is the interesting part, is because this was irrefutably dead. Four full days had gone by. This was, nobody could question it. Nobody could wonder if it was like, well, I mean, it wasn't very long, so maybe. This was irrefutable. This said to the world that Jesus had the authority to speak life into death. And I'm sure at that point, both astonished, amazed, they had to throw a party. It had to get a little crazy, like Costco cake for everybody. What just happened? Four days. But why in the world, if Jesus knows all the things that are going to happen, why does he put his friends through this? And the simple and the short answer is he doesn't. And this was an exciting discovery. Is, is if we go back to John 8, verse 27, it ends with Jesus explaining. They did not understand that, what he was, that he was telling him about his father. This is Jesus. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that this is the, this is the important part, And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. I don't say anything that my Father doesn't tell me to. I don't do anything that my Father doesn't instruct me. So if we flip back to our story, when Jesus finds out his friend is sick and he stays two more days... He's not playing a trick on his friends being like, oh man, I'm going to show up and I'm going to get them. It is going to be so good because I'm going I'm to make it all better and it's going to be awesome. No, I think God says, you're not going anywhere. I have a plan and maybe you don't fully understand it yet, but you're going to stay right where you are. And so God says, Jesus, stay put. I will bet that those two days of waiting for what God was going to do next was torture for Jesus. Because the human side of him wanted to run and wanted to save his friend. It had to be. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus Jesus would have lost the honor and the privilege and really the requirement of what doing what the Jews called sitting shiva. It's still something that Jews practice today. It's a process of grief. And it's where you go and you sit side by side with somebody. You don't need to say anything because all words don't always seem to matter at that point, right? You just need somebody to sit next to you in the grief, in the hurt, and say, I'm here with you. And the first three days were really intense. And then the next four were as well. And then that set up the rest of a month, a full 30 days of grieving. And so Jesus would have missed out on that. He did miss out on that, that opportunity to sit with his grieving friends who he loved. It's this difficult but holy and important moment because I think when he's talking about the, the, the 12 hours of daylight and we, we walk in the day where we can see, is he saying, it's, it's, it's this understanding that I'm walking in the light of God's direction. 
God is calling me and telling us where to go. Jesus doesn't enter the story all smug like, I got this, I'm going to raise him, it's fine. He enters outraged and crying. So why does he do this? We've got to finish the story, and I promise we're wrapping it up. Uh, last, here we go, 45. i got to get there, sorry guys. Okay. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. There is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die than for people, uh, for the people than that one whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of Israel to bring them together and make them one. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The Sanhedrin are like the Supreme Court uh, for, the, for the Jewish people, right? They're under the very watchful eye uh, of the Roman Empire. But now, remember, it's been four days, so the death is irrefutable. So people are getting worried that this Jesus guy, he's going to ruin everything for us. He's going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to get in trouble. They want to keep the status quo, and Jesus, of course, doesn't. So in verse 49, Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus is going to die. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation. The story of Lazarus triggers the end of the story for Jesus. It's so important. The Sanhedrin didn't want Jesus to overthrow Rome. They wanted to keep everything the way it was. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. This moment was ultimately, this moment in time, this Lazarus moment, is ultimately going to be the thing that sends Jesus to the cross. God made him stay two more days and go through all of this to set the final story in motion, right? So that, that you, Jesus, could be the answer to your own outrage. To the outrage that we have, to the outrage that he has, Jesus had to go to the cross to deal with sin and brokenness in our world. There's no other answer. There was nobody else that could do it. Jesus was the only answer. He was the answer to his own outrage, because God is working together to get Jesus to the cross. To do what only he could do. So I think it's, it's an interesting thing as we kind of wrap up our thoughts today. In my life, I so often don't understand the things that God is doing. Right? What are you doing? You seem heartless to me. This seems unfair. This seems divorce and cancer and there's addiction and death, and things in, the, in our broken world that <sighs> outrage and are seething, and at the same time, I want to burst into tears, but his ways are not our ways. In Life Skills, um, on, Thursday, on Tuesdays, I'm, I'm going through the story um, with our participants, and um, it's cool because the way they have it set up is to sort of understand that God's 
upper story, the thing that God knows, right? And how that works in with the lower story of God's people. Well, when we read scripture together, we have the vantage point of this book being done, right? So we can see how God's upper story and his lower story are weaving together and God is planning all these things after generations and generations. But guess what? Our stories are in progress, And we don't get to see it all worked out. And sometimes we don't understand how God's upper story is playing into this thing that right now at this moment feels hard. He does things we don't understand. He allows things to happen and to unfold that we don't understand. And Jesus had to trust that God was doing what was right, that he was going to work it all out. He was saying, I'm on it. I'm going to take this story and I'm going to work it out for a climactic, hopeful end. I am in this and I am on it and I won't leave you. I think that's the same invitation that we have. To trust that God is up to something. That he is in our midst and that if, and and even in those things, you're allowed to be outraged. You're allowed to get angry and you're allowed to cry and to throw a fit because Jesus is right there with you understanding, doing the same thing. It's like God says, even when things don't make sense, will you trust me? Because I'm on it. I'm working things out. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says it to Martha, the one who believes in me will never die. The hope and the understanding that we have because of that, because of who Jesus is, who he says he is, who he's proven to be, is that there is no lasting pain. When we align our faith and our life with Jesus, his fate is our fate. Jesus will die, but he will rise from the dead, and so will we. And for those who follow Jesus, there's no lasting pain. It's going to be okay. Wherever you are in this space, it's going to be okay. And the question is, can you trust Jesus? The Jesus that is outraged, so outraged that he goes to the cross to be his own answer for his own outrage. His and ours. He is the resurrection and the life. And this Lenten season, we're going to ask the same thing he asked to Martha. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father God, what a privilege it is to be here. Um, To know that you are our hope that you are the resurrection and the life, and that that you require nothing of us. One thing you you just say, you just have to believe. You have to believe in me. You put your trust and your faith and your hope in me, and through my grace alone, something I've already accomplished on the cross, you will be with me forever. That you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. God, that's your promise to us. And so help us to to, to be in the experience of, of Lent Uh, these next few weeks. Understanding, remembering uh, the sacrifice that you made for us and the ways that you continue to sacrifice for us and to call us home because you call us and you mark us as your children and you are constantly calling us to yourself. No matter what we do or where we go, you always want us. And you always make us clean because you did it a long time ago. God, I thank you for your word and the way that we can dig into it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.